We now turn to Lord's Day 44 of the Heidelberg Catechism. You can find that beginning on page 558 of your book of praise. What does the 10th commandment require of us? That not even the slightest thought or desire contrary to any of God's commandments should ever arise in our heart. Rather, with all our heart, we should always hate all sin and delight in all righteousness. But can those converted to God keep these commandments perfectly? No, in this life, even the holiest have only a small beginning of this obedience. Nevertheless, with earnest purpose, they do begin to live not only according to some, but to all the commandments of God. If in this life no one can keep the Ten Commandments perfectly, why does God have them preached so strictly? First, so that throughout our life we may more and more become aware of our sinful nature and therefore seek more eagerly the forgiveness of sins and righteousness in Christ. Second, so that while praying to God for the grace of the Holy Spirit, we may never stop striving to be renewed more and more after God's image until after this life we reach the goal of perfection. Following the ministry of the word, let's sing in response Psalm 139, the stanzas 1, 2, and 13. Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, scripture describes the heart as the center of our thoughts and feelings. In our hearts, we become aware of certain desires. We think about those desires and perhaps act on them. Those desires might be legitimate, but they might also be sinful. Sinful desires can fill our hearts, captivate our thoughts, and motivate us to do sinful things. And that's why in the 10th commandment, the Lord warns us against the sin of coveting. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. And the other commandments refer to what people do or say, but this commandment goes deeper. It focuses on the connection between what we see with our eyes and desire in our hearts. We need to think about that and draw conclusions for our own lives. And so we come to the theme for this afternoon, which is don't covet what belongs to your neighbor. And we'll see that This requirement is absolute, difficult, and thirdly, good for us. Don't covet what belongs to your neighbor. This commandment is absolute, difficult, and good for us. Beloved, there's a form of dissatisfaction in life that can drive us toward wholesome changes. Suppose you have a low-income job and are having a hard time providing for the needs of your family. 
In such circumstances, it's not wrong to look for other employment or an extra source of income. This is not what coveting is about. We can pursue wholesome changes while looking to God as our provider. It's very human to look around and compare what you have with what others have. Maybe your neighbor's home is bigger or nicer. Maybe his wife is better looking than yours. Or maybe she's more organized and works harder. Maybe he has a new vehicle on his driveway. What's your attitude to this? Coveting goes beyond not being satisfied with our circumstances in life. It involves wanting to bring about change in a sinful way. And the Lord warns us, don't covet what belongs to your neighbor. This sin begins in our hearts. If we covet strongly enough, it will lead to plans and actions that can be very destructive. So the Lord not only forbids wrong actions, he gets to the very heart of the matter, and that's why he forbids coveting. Think of how Adam and Eve sinned in paradise. Their sin was connected to desiring what was not theirs to take. They wanted to gain wisdom in a way that went against what God had told them. Genesis 3 verse 6 explains this as follows. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. They desired to become wise in a way that broke their relationship with God. And here's another example of coveting. When the Jews entered the promised land, they encountered the city of Jericho. The Lord commanded them to attack that city. But he also told them not to take anything to enrich themselves. A man called Achan later confessed, When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, then I coveted them and took them. And see, they're hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. He was not satisfied with receiving what the Lord would give his people at other times. Coveting was what led him to stealing. It was not his to take. Coveting is the opposite of contentment. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Timothy 6, the verses 6 to 8, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. There's no lasting gain in a life without godliness. Life without God is ultimately empty. A godly lifestyle, on the other hand, is one devoted to the service of God 
Knowing and loving him affects your life and the lives of those around you in a positive way. Godliness must be combined with contentment. Be satisfied with God's hand in your life, looking to him for guidance as you seek to provide for your needs and the needs of others. The Apostle Paul emphasizes the importance of being content if we have food and clothing. Those are examples of basic needs. It's human, however, to want more and more beyond just basic needs. However, when will more be enough? The Apostle Paul warns us in 1 Timothy 6, the verses 9 to 10, that those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmless desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It it is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. A husband may feel that he can show love to his wife and children by earning more. But money does not guarantee happiness. Wives sometimes pressure their husbands to earn more, even if their basic needs are met. And the result can be a lack of peace in the home, discontentment, and discord. The desire to be rich often contributes to an escalation of tensions in the home. Sometimes it even leads to divorce. More luxuries can make life easier. But what do luxuries cost? And don't think only in terms of money, but also in terms of the time that the money represents. How important it is to know when we should be content. Wanting more and more all the time can rob us of peace and quiet in our lives. In Ecclesiastes 5, the verses 11 to 12, we read, When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. And there's a lot of wisdom in those words. An abundance of goods in a country is a sign of prosperity. When the economy is booming, people spend money more easily than at other times. So there are many consumers. But buying a multitude of goods doesn't necessarily increase satisfaction in life. A lot of possessions might look impressive, but there's a limit to what you can buy and use fruitfully. And here's something else to think about. If what you bought was worth buying, you will also be inclined to take care of it. Otherwise, there's no point in having those possessions. But the time you spend on things, you can't spend in other ways. Your relationship with God may suffer. Your relationship with those around you may suffer too. Coveting things is therefore short-sighted. Material possessions belong to this world. 
People try to keep up with the latest fashions, but what is in today is out of date tomorrow. What is new will one day wear out. The focal point of your life is in the wrong place if you're driven by the desire for more and more money. And when you're obsessed with getting more and more, it can become tempting to break God's commandments in the process. You will move beyond coveting what belongs to your neighbor to actively taking more than your rightful share. The expression, business is business, for example, can become an excuse for victimizing others for financial gain. That's coveting. And then taking what is not yours. Never let riches or all kinds of possessions become your goal in life, beloved. Our Savior warns us in Luke 12, verse 15, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Ultimately, satisfaction in life doesn't depend on an abundance of worldly riches. Money or even material things such as food, drink, or clothing should never be the most important matters in our lives. Instead, what should our main concern be? It should be to serve God. In Matthew 6, verse 33, we read the words of our Savior, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. God knows what we need. Trust in him as your provider. At times we may feel inclined to doubt that God will provide. Maybe you look back on periods in your life when you wondered how you would make ends meet. Did the Lord provide? Maybe you're going through such difficulties right now. What are you thinking? Are you trusting in God? God provides, but not always in ways that we might expect. He may provide through his people. If you have financial difficulties, remember that we also have deacons. This doesn't mean, however, that we will never be in need. We read in the letter to the Hebrews about believers who went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, means they had nothing, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in desert and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. What do we learn from this? There are times when God's children suffer from hunger or persecution. How challenging it is then to trust that he is still in control. Nevertheless, it is true. Never doubt his power. He oversees everything. Nothing happens by chance. Don't doubt the love of our father either. Hasn't he proved his love by sending his one and only son into this world for our salvation? He knows what is best for us. In his love, he sometimes provides for the ultimate remedy, releasing us permanently from the suffering of this life to give us entrance to a better life with him.
And that's not loss, beloved, but gain. Think of the words of Psalm 73, verses 25 to 26. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Don't covet what belongs to your neighbor. This requirement is difficult. This is our second point. In the second half of Psalm 19, we read words of praise concerning the law of the Lord. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The more you reflect on the law of God, the more you will see and appreciate its perfection. A simple person is someone who still has a lot to learn. He or she is not yet fully capable of making wise choices based on knowing God and his will. But if a simple person lives by the law of God, he will become wise. Obedience to God will help him avoid making mistakes that can have serious long-term consequences. We read in James 1 verse 25 that the law is the perfect law, the law of liberty. Sin leads to stress, distress, grief, and even eternal punishment if there's no repentance. If you keep God's law, you will be free of sin and its disastrous effects. In Psalm 19, David sings so clearly of the perfection of God's law. But he also acknowledges his shortcomings. His prayer should also be ours. Who can discern his errors, he writes, Forgive my hidden faults. None of us succeeds in keeping the law of God perfectly. We aren't even always aware of our sins. David prays, Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. There are sins that we do deliberately. We know what is right and yet fail to do it. And how important it is to pray to God to keep us from such sins. Without such prayers, we will be seeking to live for God in our own strength or maybe even disregarding his revealed will for our lives. The Tenth Commandment brings our sins to light in a special way. By forbidding us to covet, the Lord focuses on what's in our hearts. And he shows us how easily sinful thoughts arise there. What makes a person desire somebody's attractive home, his gorgeous wife, or something else that he has? Isn't discontentment often the root? And dwelling on that can feed fantasies that form the beginnings of sin. None of us keeps God's laws we should. In chapter 3, verse 2, James writes that we all stumble in many ways. And the word for stumble also means trip or fall. 
it's important for us to take note of such texts. And the Catechism echoes this point. It states that even the holiest have only a small beginning of this obedience. Just look at the lives of people described in the Bible. They all had their shortcomings in one way or another. We read of the drunkenness of Noah. Abraham lied on more than one occasion, failing to trust in God to protect him. Samson had a weakness for women. David's sin of adultery with Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah, her husband, is described in detail. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul speaks of his struggles. He mentions, I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Led by the law of God, he has learned to acknowledge, I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. And the Bible gives us such examples to show us that no one is perfect. Don't think that you're alone in having to struggle against certain sins. When you feel as if you're the only one with such problems, your sins can leave you feeling depressed. And this can lead to giving up the struggle against them. Beloved, don't give up fighting against your weaknesses and sins. Pray for forgiveness because of Christ's sacrifice on the cross. And remember that by his sufferings and death, our Savior also obtained the right to give us the Holy Spirit to live in our hearts and renew our lives. And what a gift it is to have the Holy Spirit working in us. So pray that the Word and Spirit of God may bear fruit in your life. Regenerated by the Spirit of God, we learn to love the Lord and his law. Although we can't keep that law perfectly, there will be the desire to do so. And when we fall in sin, our conscience will bother us. The word of God will resonate in our hearts, convicting us of sin. And we will desire to be holy and will grow in obedience. And we can already find a description of this process in the Old Testament. Proverbs 4 verse 18 notes that the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn, which shines brighter and brighter until full day. In 2 Corinthians 3 verse 18, the Apostle Paul writes about this as well. He describes this process of renewal as something that takes place as we look in faith to our ascended Savior. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. And Paul's point is that the Spirit, who is the Spirit sent by Christ, gradually renews us to become more and more like Jesus Christ himself. It takes time to learn to love and trust in the Lord. Focus first on his love shown to us through Jesus Christ. 
Look at how the Apostle Paul does this in Romans 8, verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Paul expects much from our gracious God. We should expect no less. Jesus Christ gave his life for our salvation, atoning for our sins on the cross. And through faith in him, we enter into fellowship with God. Will God then not give us whatever we need to live for him? Trusting this to be true, we learn to value things in terms of how they can help us to serve God. And this also impacts our way of relating to people around us we learn the importance of reflecting God's undeserved love toward them. Dissatisfaction with God lies at the heart of sin, sin against his commandments. But when we are content to have him fulfill all our needs, we will delight in living for him. So be patient. Depend on him for guidance and strength. Depend on him to provide you with what you need to live for him. Don't let there be dissatisfaction in your heart concerning God's unfolding plans for your life. Learning to be content with his provision in life is a process that the Apostle Paul had to go through. In Philippians 4, verses 12 to 13, he writes, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned, pay attention now, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Pray to learn that same secret of true contentment. Love God and trust in him in all circumstances. Don't covet. We have seen that this command is absolute and it's also difficult for us. It exposes our weakness. We can't obey God in our own strength. We need the powerful work of the Holy Spirit to change us. And then when confronted with God's perfect law, we learn to see that God's requirement is also good for us. And this is our third point. Why bother reflecting on the Ten Commandments if we can't keep them perfectly anyway? Isn't it enough simply to focus on the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ? There have been people in history, in the history of the Christian church who have spoken in this way. And many church denominations pay little attention to the Ten Commandments. They fail to realize how important the law of God is. There is a very close connection between the law and the gospel. God shows us that in his word. Never try to separate what he has bound together. Our catechism highlights the connection. It speaks of God's law 
twice in different contexts. The first time is Lord's Day 2. There we hear the summary of the law given by Jesus Christ in Matthew 22, the verses 37 to 40. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. And that, by the way, is a reference to the Old Testament. At the time of Jesus, the New Testament hadn't been written yet. So how do you refer then to the Old Testament? The law and the prophets was one way of doing that. And that summary that Jesus gave highlights love as the key issue in our relationship with God and our neighbors. And the summary of the law functions as a mirror. Something of the extent of our sins and misery becomes visible. And this is important. We need to become more and more aware of our sinful nature. Then we will see the importance of humbling ourselves before God and asking for salvation. We would not know of our need for the good news about Jesus Christ without the law of God to teach us. We need the forgiveness of our sins. And God grants forgiveness through Jesus Christ. Only his blood can wash away our sins. Our hearts need transformation. Without that, we'll be inclined to continue in sin, never repenting. We therefore need the ongoing, renewing work of the Holy Spirit. Forgiveness and renewal, justification and sanctification, these are God's gifts to us through Jesus Christ. And both are included in the promise of the gospel. Receive them in faith. Only the blood and spirit of Christ can cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And as people who have been saved by the grace of God, we need to learn to live for God. And this is why the Catechism devotes extensive attention to the Ten Commandments. We easily become self-satisfied and complacent. It's all good. We would not know in what direction the renewal of our lives should take place without the instruction of the law of God. The Ten Commandments serve as a standard to live by and a goal to strive for. Use them, beloved, to give form to your prayers for renewal by the Holy Spirit. This is how to grow in showing thankfulness to our God who saves us from our sins and misery through Jesus Christ. In this life, we have only a small beginning of the obedience that God demands in his law. And nevertheless, by the grace of God, that beginning is there. Pray daily for an even richer outpouring of God's grace. Pray to become more and more obedient. This will bring glory to his name. We aren't the only ones who will benefit from such obedience. Our neighbors will too. Amen.